Well, <laughs> thank you very much, Troy. I, I have uh, been introduced so many times in so many places in so many ways that I'm a bit of a connoisseur of introductions. And of all the introductions I've ever heard, Troy, I've got to tell you, that was certainly uh, one of them. <laughs> That's British humor. Don't feel you have to respond, but I'm enjoying it immensely. It's such a real pleasure and a very genuine privilege to be invited to be with you today. It's been a, it's been a rough week. And immediately you all know what I'm referring to. We have been subjected in the United States of America to terrorism. Terrorism is uh, not new. Israel has lived with it for ever. Ireland, much closer to my home, uh, experienced it for decades. But now it's, uh, it's coming home here as well. It's a frightening thing. It's interesting, isn't it? I, I trust this will not be misunderstood. But it's interesting to me that the story of the people who were injured, and the three people who were killed uh, in the bombing, at the end of the marathon, that dominated the news, even though at the same time, down in a little town of Texas, there was an explosion, killed far more people, did far more damage. Now, this is not to suggest one was more important than the other, but there's no question that one of those events that actually was responsible for less damage is the one that dominated us. Why? Well, I, th I think as far as the explosion in the fertilizer factory is concerned, OSHA will be able to look into that and uh, find out what happened and fix it so that it doesn't happen again, sort of thing. That's, that's how we operate. In other words, we have a degree of control over that. Terrorism, you don't. You're playing catch-up all the time. I uh, remember many years ago being in Ireland, Northern Ireland, at the time of what the Irish called euphemistically the Troubles. <laughs> that was what they called them, the Troubles. It was basically civil war that went on for decades. The troubles. We, uh, we were due to have a, a week special meeting, meetings for teenagers in Belfast. But we had to make some hurried adjustments just before the meetings were due to start for the simple reason that the hall we were going to hold it in no longer existed. Terrorist bomb. Just blown it to pieces. So we uh, had to quickly find somewhere else. And there I was introduced to metal detectors. I'd never seen a metal detector before. Because going into evangelistic meetings for young people in Belfast, every young person was required to go through a metal detector. And I thought, what in the world is happening to us? Now you can't get on a plane without going through a metal detector. The thing that was particularly powerful in Belfast in those days was that there would be a genuine bomb exploded somewhere, and usually 
they would phone in just before the bomb was going to explode to warn people and panic would result, trying to clear the area. And then nothing would happen because there wasn't a bomb. And so that would happen two or three times. And then if people get very casual, ah, it's another false alarm, but it wasn't. The building goes up and people are blown to pieces. Now you go back to being unsure again. We had in one day alone during that youth event, to which the young people incidentally came in their hundreds, despite all that was going on, in one day we had 50 bomb alerts in Belfast alone. Everybody was living on edge. This is terrorism. Scary world, folks. It's a frightening world. The interesting thing, however, is this. That this frightening, scary world of ours, let's be realistic about it. The frightening, scary world of ours is the only environment in which you and I have been called to live Christianly. What an environment. What an opportunity. The darker the night, the brighter the light shines. But the problem, unfortunately, is this. If life gets difficult for us, then sometimes we become discouraged, we become disheartened, we lose heart, we want to withdraw into ourselves, we want to be self-protective and self-preservation becomes our dominant concern. And that is not what we're called to. Jesus did say, when he was talking about recruiting people to the kingdom, he, he was very, very straightforward. He, he said, in the world, you will have trouble. <laughs> now, he obviously had flunked the Dale Carnegie course. <laughs> you, don't, you don't say that. He, he, had, he would have preached, he would have flunked a lot of contemporary preaching courses with that approach. You don't do that, folks. You tell them how great it's going to be, how wonderful it's going to be, how everything's going to be fixed, how everything will be super. He never said that. What he said was, in the world you will have trouble, but, but in me, you will have peace. Now, it's not fair to invite people to join the Christian cause, to call men and women to a life of discipleship. It's not fair to suggest to them that it will be a quick, easy, cheap, painless fix of their problems. The reality is it will probably alleviate some of your problems and introduce you to some new ones. But the difference is this. You do it in association with Christ, who is the author of peace that passes understanding. In other words, you become a disciple of Jesus living in a terror-filled world exhibiting an incredible degree of equanimity, the peace of God that passes understanding. When everything's going fine, people are at peace. Oh, the weather's great, I'm on vacation, swaying palms, Asia, sea, cloudless skies and Hawaiian music in the background, sipping 
cool drinks and I'm at peace. And I can understand that. That's not peace that passes understanding. It's when all hell is breaking loose. And I've got that deep-rooted sense that allows me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. So I've got a message for you. It's going to be tough, folks. It's going to be rough out there. We're called to live in that environment. It is the only environment in which you will be given the opportunity to live out your life of discipleship. Isn't that encouraging? Hello? <laughs> now, I want to direct your attention to the letter to the Hebrews. The letter to the Hebrews, funnily enough, was written to a group of Jewish people. This group of, of Jewish people were an unusual group. You're familiar with the history of the Jewish people. God, for reasons only knowing, known to himself, had got in touch with a man called Abram, called him into a relationship with himself, and he made what we call a covenant with him. A covenant. Marriage is a covenant. So you know what happens at a wedding. Two people make commitments to each other. A covenant. All right? This covenant that God made with Abraham was predicated on God taking the initiative. And he called Abraham and he said, Abraham... I'm going to reveal myself to you. The society in which you live, where you were born, in which you've grown up, the society whose mores you have accepted as normative, you've breathed its air, you speak its language, you think its thoughts, you play its games. This society that you are part and parcel of, you're a creature of your culture, Abraham, is dominated by a pantheon of gods. They are petty. They are awfully like human beings. They get into fights and feuds. They contradict each other. They hate each other. And you are spending all your time trying to keep them all off your back. And you know that if you obey one of these gods, a dozen others will be ticked with you for doing it. And so you'll have a blessing from one God and you'll be cursed by 10. And you are living in this constant turmoil. And I got news for you, Abraham. The Lord, your God, is one. None of that other chaos. I am the Lord. I am utterly unique. Now, Abraham, listen to this. I will be your God. I will bless you. I will guide you. I will provide for you. I will overshadow you. I will be your rear guard. I will go ahead of you. I will overshadow you. I will undergird you. Got it, Abraham? By the way, Abraham, your response to that commitment on my part is very straightforward. You will live in loving, trusting obedience to me. Covenant. Covenant. God made that covenant with the Jewish people through Abraham. And he also added one more thing. He said, I will bless you and in you all the nations of the world will be blessed. And God put into motion 
the whole principle of redemption for a fallen world. Now, the people, of the, the, the descendants of Abraham, do they, do they get into Asia skies and waving palm trees and cool drinks and say, oh, this is so great? No, in actual fact, they get themselves into all kinds of predicaments. In fact, they seem to lurch from one tragedy to another, but there's one constant in this whole thing. It is that God, who looks at his fallen world and wants it back, and that's why he made a covenant with Abraham, the one constant in this upside-down, topsy-turvy world is that God doesn't change. God doesn't change. And so Abraham begins to walk with God. But he walks into all kinds of difficulties, all kinds of problems, but his faith doesn't waver. Well, Centuries roll by, centuries roll by, and things go from bad to worse in the children of Abraham. They come now to be called the children of Israel. But God, through his prophets, keeps promising something. He keeps promising he will send his anointed one, his chosen one, his set-apart one, his empowered one. That's all wrapped up in the word Messiah, which comes from the Hebrew, or in his Christ, which comes from the Greek. Messiah, Christ, will come, the great deliverer of the Jewish people. And over and over again, as the Jewish people get themselves lurching from one disaster to another, a prophet will come up and say, God will send Messiah. God will send Messiah. He is coming. And one day he came and they never recognized him. In fact, not only did they not recognize him, they rejected him. Not only did they reject him, they subjected him to the most awesome, fearsome, inhuman treatment imaginable. And they killed him. And on the third day, according to the story, God raised him from the dead. Now, it took a long time to put all the pieces together, but as the Jewish people went back to their prophets and began to study their scriptures again, they discovered something they'd missed. They had missed their understanding of what Messiah, what Christ, would look like. He had been described by the great prophet Isaiah as the suffering servant. They had seen him as a ruling militaristic king. They had got hold of the language that God would build his eternal kingdom that would be a natural development of the glory days of the reign of David and Solomon. They never for one fraction of a second thought that Messiah would come and that as Messiah put it, he would be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement of our peace would upon him and by his stripes we would be healed. They missed it. But when Jesus was rejected by the Jewish people and they got authority from the Romans to see him crucified and thereby cursed, for cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. It seemed as if yet another would-be Messiah had come to a sticky end. 
until on the third day God raised him from the dead. And God let loose an unmistakable message. And it was this, that through this whole dastardly experience, God had been in control. That the death of Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, was a fulfillment of what Isaiah had promised and predicted. And that the whole point of Messiah was this. He was not coming to rule and reign from a militaristic and a political and an economic platform. He was coming to rule and reign in the hearts and lives of men and women and change them from the inside out. And this began to happen 50 days after Jesus was crucified, when Jerusalem was full of people who'd come for the great celebration of Pentecost. And there was a sound like a mighty rushing wind that frightened everybody in Jerusalem to death. And a group of 120 frightened, beleaguered followers of Jesus who were meeting together began to experience something that they themselves did not understand, but it was unmistakable. Contrary to what happened at the Tower of Babel when men had decided that they were going to reach God on their own terms, and God said, oh no, you're not, and he confused them, and that's why we have all the languages that produce so much confusion in our world today. Contrary to that, Instead of language being a basis of confusion, these followers of Jesus began to speak in languages they hadn't learned and understand languages they had never learned. And there were countless miracles of hearing and speaking and it spread like wildfire and the people said, what in the world is going on? And some of the people who do what people to this day do, when they don't understand something, they don't take the trouble to learn, they just ridicule. And they said, these guys are drunk. And that was too much for a type A disciple of Jesus called Simon Peter. Simon Peter jumped up and he said, these people aren't drunk. He said, I'll tell you what is happening here. This is what God has promised. This is what Jesus talked about. And let me explain something to you. You are responsible for killing Messiah. It was all done according to the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, but you're still culpable that God was still working out his purposes because God specializes in working out his purposes whether people will cooperate or not. And he's demonstrated that by raising Jesus from the dead. And the, the death of Jesus was intentional. It was intentional. The death of Jesus was the means whereby the sins of the whole world could be blotted out so that God could be just and merciful and gracious and holy and righteous and loving all at the same time. You, you know that, don't you? You know that God is holy and righteous and just and loving and gracious and merciful. A lot of people like the loving, gracious, merciful stuff and they avoid holy, righteous and just like the plague. You can't do that. And the big mystery of God dealing with humanity is this. How in the world can he be holy and righteous and just at the same time he's loving and gracious and merciful? And the answer is very simple. The cross. You want to understand the holiness of God? His hatred of sin. Do you, understand? Do you want to understand the righteousness of God? That means he'll do the right thing. Do you want to understand the justice of God, where we get what we deserve? Then look at the cross. And you'll see the awesomeness of sin, and you'll see the holiness of God, 
You'll see the righteousness and the justice of God on display, but you'll also see the love and the mercy and the grace of God. And on the third day, after Jesus had gone through the intentional, his intentional death on the cross, on the third day, God raised him from the dead and he threw out a challenge to humanity and he said, in effect, you killed my son. I accept what he did. And here is my stamp of approval on the death of Jesus when he raised him from the dead. And Peter, preaching his sermon on the day of Pentecost, he says to them, let all the house of Israel know this assuredly. This Jesus, whom you crucified, God has made to be Lord and Christ. And that was the great climax of his sermon. Sermons are not supposed to die out with a whimper. They're supposed to come to a climax. And the climax was this. When they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts and they said, what should we do? When they heard this means cognitively, they grasped the message. Affectively, it affected them. They were pricked in their hearts. A lot of people sit and listen to the message and they nod their heads and say, sure, I believe that. Doesn't make any difference, but I believe it. That's not faith. That's simply an academic nod to facts. Affective affects me deeply and leads me to the evaluative dimension where I realize if that is true and it affects me as it does, I need to act upon it. That's faith. And acting upon it, they didn't know what to do. What should we do? They asked Peter. And he knew exactly what to tell them. He said, um, you need to repent. And you need to uh, ask for forgiveness for your sins. And you need to publicly confess the fact that you're trusting Jesus alone. And you need to put some distance between yourself and this crooked, perverted, perverse culture. And 3,000 of them did. Have you, have you done that? 3,000 of them did. And they became Hebrew Christians. And all that leads me to what I was going to talk about this morning. <laughs> because you see, the letter to the Hebrews is about some of those people who came as children of Abraham to an experience of God's chosen Messiah, the suffering servant, and started well. And then they ran into trouble. A lot of people get the impression that if they come to Jesus, they're coming to easy street. He never said that. If you start running with Jesus, you run into trouble. Many years ago, when my wife was in college, excuse me, when my daughter was in college, um, so it's obviously a long time ago, and it's equally obviously a long time ago, because she called me and said, Dad, there's a 10,000 meter race at the lakefront on Saturday, will you run it with me? Obviously, a long time ago. <laughs> so I said yes, and we went to where the race was to begin. 25,000 people running for a race, Al Maguire's race. <laughs> so... Right at the front, they were all lined up. We were late getting there. All the professional runners who'd been paid a fee to run. So we could say we ran with them. You see. Behind were some guys training for the Olympics. Behind that were 
the college athletes. Behind that were serious joggers. Behind that were joggers. Behind that were occasional joggers. Behind that were, what in the world are you thinking, joggers? <laughs> See? And then, I'm not going to tell you where we were. And then, and then right at the back, there was the strangest group of people. Strangest group of people. There was one guy who decided and he announced he was going to run 10,000 meters backwards. Another guy was on stilts. There was a group of fellows who were dressed up like the guys uh, in the ad for underwear, the fruit of the loom underwear. <laughs> you know, one guy was dressed as a banana, another guy's plum, all this sort of thing. My favorites, there were five guys and they had a bed on wheels. <laughs> and they were smart. Five guys, one at each corner and one lying on the bed. When somebody got tired, he got on the bed, the guy got <laughs> off the bed and pushed. Good thinking, good thinking. All right, the gun sounded, off we went. It took a long time for us to get to the starting line. But then we all set our watches and off we go. All you could hear was laughter at the back, clapping and cheering. That subsided after we got away from the people who were just standing at the beginning. And soon you could just hear a great chattering going on because we were going very slowly and we're all jammed in, 25,000 people, you see. Everybody's talking away and it's a gorgeous morning. And then a kilometer down the road, the talking eases off a little bit. You can hear the deep breathing. Another kilometer, uh, you can't hear breathing at all. <laughs> another kilometer, you hear the flap, flap, flap of feet. Then another kilometer, all you can hear is gasping. <laughs> and then it's so quiet you can hear the birds singing. And then, in the final kilometer, you can hear people praying. Oh, Lord, deliver me from this, and I promise I'll never do it again. And then we got to the end of the race. And those of us who staggered across the finishing line were given a bottle of water, which was very welcome, a T-shirt that was too small, and a printout of where everybody had finished. So I checked where my daughter and I were, and then I looked for the guy running backwards, and he wasn't there, and the fellow dressed up in honor of Milwaukee as a beer bottle. He was last seen leaning over a picket fence. <laughs> the fruit of the loom, the guy dressed up as a plum, his outfit burst, so they all quit in sympathy. The wheel came off the bed, and so they went home. And the guy on stilts fell off his stilts. And you know what? At the beginning of the race, they grabbed all the attention. At the end of the race, they never got a mention. And the moral of the story is this, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. And that was the problem with these Hebrews. They'd run into difficulties. For some of them, the wheel had come off. Some of them, all their pretensions had burst. Some of them fell off their high perch. And they wanted to quit. So you could get at the tone. You can get the tone of Hebrews very, very quickly. Let me, just, let me just read a few verses for you. And you'll see why this letter was written to these people. Chapter 2, verse 1. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. Uh-oh. So that we do not drift away. Oh, I didn't know I was getting into this. They drift away. 
you know anybody like that? Made quite a splash at the beginning of the race. Chapter 3, verse 12. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. That's, that's sort of the stage after drifting away. Drifting away imperceptibly, but now an unbelieving heart that is getting into sinful practice that we refuse to leave and we finish up turning away from the living God. Chapter 4, verse 11. Let us therefore make every effort to enter into the rest. This is referring to the children of Israel brought out of Egypt through the wilderness, but they never got into the promised land. Never got there. They perished in the wilderness. So he says, let us therefore make every effort to make sure we enter into all that God has for us so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. Well, there are a lot more of these things all the way through Hebrews. This is the passage I want you to notice. This, this is where my sermon really starts. <laughs> that was all introduction. <laughs> and if you knew how much I'd left out, you'd stand in line to hug me at the end. <laughs> Chapter 12, verse 1. Listen, listen to this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. A lot of people growing weary in this Christian life, the life of discipleship. A lot of people losing heart. This tells you how to avoid that. And then listen to what he says. This is really a clincher. In your struggle against sin, it is a struggle. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. All right. Very, very quickly. I'll just give you the outline. Then, you can take, then you've got something to take away You've got the context of it. You take it away and you meditate on it. You know what scripture says? Meditate on these things and the Lord will give you understanding. You know what a lot of people do? They go to a church service. They listen to the sermon. They get up at the end of the sermon. They talk about everything except what the sermon was about and never give it another thought. And they're the people who say, I didn't understand what he was talking about. And scripture says, meditate upon these things and the Lord will give you understanding. All right, here's your meditation fodder for the coming week. Number one, if we're going to avoid growing weary and becoming downhearted, we should remember that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. <laughs> A great cloud of witnesses. That's what it says in chapter 12, verse 1. Now, in my Bible, chapter 12, verse 1 comes very, very quickly after chapter 11. <laughs> chapter 11 of Hebrews is an account of all kinds of people who were children of Abraham and children of Israel who ran into all kinds of trouble and finished well. One after the other. Now, this is what you do. You remember when you're getting discouraged or downhearted <laughs> that you haven't invented growing weary discouragement 
and getting downhearted. It's been around for centuries. <laughs> and the history, Christian history, recounted for us in Scripture all the way back to the time of Abraham has story after story after story after story of people who, if I may say it, have gone through a whole lot more than we have and did well. And that's what you do when you get discouraged. You get your nose in the book and you start reading the stories and you learn from the people who went before you. Now, often this passage of Scripture is translated as if we are coming into the stadium at the end of the race and the stands are full of people and we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. But the word is witnesses, not spectators. It's not about people spectating. The people in glory who've gone on ahead, they've more to do than watch us. I think it'd be pretty discouraging for them if they spent time in heaven watching us on earth, don't you? All right, don't answer that. <laughs> no, they are, they are people who can witness to the reality of going, running into trouble and doing well. Check on Hebrews 11 this afternoon. The second thing that we've got to do is this. We've got to build discipline into our experience. Now, this is what, this is what it says. Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and sin that easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. All right? Discipline. Discipline. In other words, when they were going into a race in the first century, when Hebrews was written, they didn't just show up for the Olympics or the Isthmian Games. They had to enroll as a contestant six months before and go into supervised training. And the first thing they did was weigh them. And then they would weigh them day after day after day. Why? Because they knew that if they were going to run a race with perseverance and not just finish, not just start, but they were going to finish it, they got to be in shape. Now, we need to apply that in every dimension of our lives. Am I in physical shape? Am I in relational shape? Am I in spiritual shape? Do I need to build in spiritual disciplines so that I'm running and not just waddling along? He not only talks about getting rid of the weight or the bulk or the mass that hinders, but also he talks about sin that so easily entangles. Have you noticed how sin works? It, it starts in a little thing and you're careless about it, ill-disciplined about it, and it grows and grows and grows. And you played with it at first. And then in the end, it got you. It's like the guy in the circus who had a baby anaconda as a pet. He used to play with it. And they used to train it to wrap itself around him. And then he would give a signal when it was fully grown and it would unwind. And one day he gave the signal and the anaconda had a mind of its own. And it didn't unwind. And the circus crowds heard the crushing of his bones. Sin that so easily entangles. Who are the little things, the big things? Look after themselves. Got to build in discipline. Throw off every weight that hinders, sin that easily entangles. Run with perseverance, the race marked out for you. 
There is a race that is marked out for you that is not marked out for anybody else. My eldest son was a cross-country runner and a good one. My youngest son is six foot six, so he decided he didn't need to run any further than the length of a basketball court. I have a son, another, a grandson. He's an All-American, an academic All-American in two sports. He plays baseball and he plays soccer. He runs tirelessly in the hour and a half of a soccer game. He's engaged to a gal from Green Bay who for some incredible reason runs the 400 meters hurdles. All these races are different. You've got a different race laid out for you than I've got. It's not a case of looking at what I'm doing. It's not a case of me looking at what you're doing. It's a case of me looking at the race set out for me and asking a very simple question. How am I running it? We've got to build in some discipline. And the third thing is this. We are to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith or the author and perfecter. I, I like this idea. I only thought of it myself the other day. So you probably aren't very impressed with it, but I'm very impressed. <laughs> if Jesus is the author of faith, <laughs> you could say he wrote the book on the subject. Isn't that cute? <laughs> you don't think so. You want to go home. All right. <laughs> He wrote the book on it. He wrote the book on it in this way. He is the one who established the ground of faith. Remember, the most important thing about faith is the ground of faith. And I can prove it to you. You can have great big faith in very thin ice. And what happens? You're dead. Oh, he was so full of faith. Wow, he was so full. Yeah. Great faith, thin ice, very dead. <laughs> Little faith, thick ice, safe as houses. It's the ground of faith that matters. And Jesus wrote the book on that. He is the one who reveals to us what God is like. He is the one who reveals to us what man should be like. He is the one who shows us our deep spiritual need. He is the one who, through his death on the cross, met our deep spiritual needs. He is the one, through his resurrection and seat in glory, has sent his Holy Spirit into the world to draw us into a relationship with himself, to open our eyes to our condition, to show us the glory of the gospel and the beauty of Jesus. He is the author of our faith. And he is also the one who lived it out. So that if we have any questions, we just fix our eyes on him at work. Are you doing that? He is the author and he is the perfecter. He is the one who's given us the ground for faith and has drawn us to faith. Faith has been born in our hearts and we've started on the race, but we've run into trouble. So guess what? He is now the perfecter of our faith because now it's wobbling. Now our legs are faint. Now our muscles are cramping now our mind is wandering. Now we're hitting the wall and we're staggering. And he is the one who is available to perfect our failing faith. One story and I'm through. Aren't those lovely words? One story and I'm through. There was a time when the Boston Marathon was going to be cancelled because there was racial rioting going on in Boston. 
Wiser heads decided, well, we won't, we won't cancel the race because it's going through the troubled areas of Boston. Maybe if we run the race, it will be such an event that it will bring people together and they'll quit rioting. And that happened. I understand, and I've never run the marathon, I've never run any marathon, but I understand that there's a point at which people hit the wall, just can't go on. And for many people in the Boston Marathon, that happens at the bottom of something called Heartbreak Hill. Very steep incline, just at the point where people feel they can't go on. And because a lot of people have a sadistic streak to them, they like to congregate at the bottom of Heartbreak Hill and watch people collapsing. <laughs> people get their jollies in a variety of ways. So then they enjoy themselves hurling abuse at the people who are at least trying to run. Come on, you big wimp, pick yourself up. You're running like a little old lady. Come on, don't quit. You know, go on like shouting at them like. There's a young guy, hit the wall, sees Heartbreak Hill looming ahead, hears the abuse of the people. Can't go on. Just can't go on. Up ahead of him is an older man who hears what is going on, stops running, sees the plight of the young man, turns around and incredibly runs down Heartbreak Hill. And he goes to the earth, young man. And he said, here, put your hip on my hip. He said, let me put my arms under your armpits. Now he said, we're going to take it one step at a time. And slowly but surely, the older man and the younger man made it to the top. The old man was black and the young man was white. And that was the high point of the race for many of the shamed people hurling abuse. And I've got news for you. There are plenty of people willing to hurl abuse at struggling followers of Jesus. But at least we're in the race, folks. But more than that, Jesus is the perfecter of our faith, which means that he is the one who implements in our lives, by his indwelling presence, the nerve, the desire, the longing, and the power to finish well. So, Don't lose heart and don't grow weary. Oh, by the way, there will be trouble. And God bless you.